For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a conversation with civil rights pioneer Dr. Bernard Lafayette. What is natural democracy? Find out in a new episode of Indigenous Voices. And I'll talk with Tucson author Lala Corriere about dramatizing the opioid epidemic in her new detective novel. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. On the morning of the day that he was assassinated, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. told a young associate named Bernard Lafayette that their next task would be to institutionalize and internationalize the nonviolence movement. After King's death, that became Lafayette's life work. Today, he is chair of the National Board of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the organization founded by Dr. King. Laura Markowitz talked with civil rights pioneer Bernard Lafayette during his recent visit to Tucson's Culture of Peace Alliance Nonviolence Legacy Project. At 78 years old, Bernard Lafayette Jr. comes across as laid back. He leans back in his chair and adjusts his cap. It has the words Freedom Rider emblazoned on the front. In fact, his new book, In Peace and Freedom, is all about those days. But Lafayette's work is not just in the past. He's been busy for the last 53 years building an international movement that teaches the principles of Martin Luther King's version of nonviolence. It's called Kingian nonviolence. So we have institutions around the world, like, for example, Alternatives to Violence Project, and that's in prisons. It's in about 60 countries around the world, 30 states in the U.S. It helps the inmates learn how to manage conflict in a nonviolent way. Just a few months ago, Lafayette trained Nigerian tribal leaders, generals, and kings. On the second day of our training in Nigeria, one of the leaders got a phone call from home saying that his house had been invaded and his brother was killed and his wife and children were on the run and all they wanted was the word from their leader who was with us to go after them. And he said, no, don't do anything until I get back. I have found another way. This person had, under his direct command, 1.2 million armed troops. And as a result of the nonviolence training, we were able to avert that situation. See, people revert to violence when they don't know what else to do. Violence is the language of the inarticulate. People don't know how to talk to each other. They stay separated from each other, and they form these false opinions and ideas about each other. He had firsthand experience of this growing up in the segregated South in the 1940s. I grew up in Tampa, Florida. When I was seven years old, I used to wake up early in the morning because I could smell the Cuban coffee being roasted. So I got out of bed and decided that I was going to go walk around and I found the merchants preparing to open up their stores. So I came up with the idea that uh, these people might need some coffee. 
they didn't have these coffee machines in those days. So I was Mr. Coffee. I would go and take orders, and I would go down to Las Novedades restaurant and put in my order. And then I would take it back to the merchants, and there was a 10 cents for the coffee and 10 cents for the delivery. Well, I was waiting on my coffee to be served at the restaurant, and I used to lean against a, a stool. And I was a, kind of a short fella, so those were tall stools. And then eventually, I would put my thigh up on top of the stool and uh, rest it there for a while. And over a period of time, I eased on up on top of the stool, and then I was sitting there. And I remember even this day, the moment of truth. The fellow was fixing the coffee. There was a huge mirror in front of him, and he could look and see me behind him. And our eyes met, and I saw him look towards the window to make sure no one saw me sitting on the stool. I continued to talk and talk and talk. We talked about everything else except sitting on the stool. When I started sitting on that stool, uh, the service was faster. I hadn't thought about it until now. It didn't take as long for him to fix the coffee. He wanted to get you out of there. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> mm -hmm. It sounds like that experience gave you a sense of confidence that you could be seen as a human being and treated like a human being. Yes. When I was growing up, Tarzan, by himself, he would whip an entire African tribe. So that gave credence to the fact that if you're white, you're superior. What we have to do is continue to educate and expose people to a different point of view. I have other experiences that motivated me to get involved in the movement. I used to spend my time following behind my grandmother. So this time we were catching the, the streetcar, we call it, trolley car. In those days, blacks had to go and put their money in the front in the receptacle by the driver. And then we had to disembark and walk on the side of the streetcar to the back door. And we used to have to sometimes run because the conductor, after he got your money and you were walking to the back, he would close the door and take off with your money. So I used to run ahead, jump on the back steps so the door wouldn't close. So I was running back there and my grandmother was running behind me. And she fell, and she was a large woman. And then I reached back to try to pick her up, and then the trolley was moving, and I tried to hold the door, and I felt like a sword had cut me in half. So I felt helpless. And I remember saying this to myself. I said, when I get grown, I'm going to do something about this problem. Lafayette was 19 when he co-founded the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He became a freedom rider. At age 22, he was director of the Alabama voter registration campaign in Selma. I was really impressed with the power of nonviolence. It's a resource that you can use in your struggle where you don't depend on any outside objects. In other words, you are fully armed even when you step out of the shower in the morning with the truth, with courage, with a vision with a philosophy. Lafayette survived an assassination attempt on the night Medgar Evers was killed. He says these experiences only deepened his conviction that nonviolence is the best path to meaningful social change. We have had an escalation of violence in our society. 
both in the everyday experiences and ordinary people, but also in terms of our media everywhere you turn. So I think we have to talk to our young people that they come to the conclusion that this is not very healthy for us. It contributes more to our demise than our rise. And therefore, if they develop an attitude of rejecting that, then the change will come. Glad to see what's happening in Florida with the high school students. The most important thing is not the experiences that they're having, it's their interpretation of those experiences. That's why it's important for us to talk to children. They're experiencing things every day is how you interpret the experience. You can only fight and change hate with love. You can't drive out darkness with darkness, only with light. You have to see the goal that you're trying to reach, but you have to reflect that goal in every step that you make towards that goal. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura Markowitz. Visit the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org for more information about Kingian nonviolence training in Tucson. Indigenous Voices, Reflections from Native America is a recurring series on Arizona Spotlight produced in association with University of Arizona professor Patricia Gonzalez. Dr. Gregory Cajete is the author of several books, including Indigenous Community, Rekindling the Teachings of the Seventh Fire. He is a member of Santa Clara Pueblo and the chair of Native American Studies at the University of New Mexico. In this interview, Patricia Gonzalez asks Dr. Cajete about his views on the importance of Indigenous community and to explain the concept of natural democracy. Dr. Cajete, tell us the story of how you came to decide to write a book on indigenous community. Well, this, this book actually, in, in a lot of ways, or at least the idea of indigenous community has been a part of actually everything I've written. Uh, but particularly this book, I, I wanted to sort of focus on the whole context of indigenous community as being the, uh, the foundation and even the wellspring from which uh, indigenous thought, indigenous forms of education, indigenous art uh, comes from. And so it's kind of the, the soil that uh, sprouts these many different kinds of, of seeds of of uh, plants, you know, that deal with uh, the different aspects of what it is to be an indigenous person. And so uh, I felt community, you know, was appropriate for lots of different reasons. Um, first, because, uh, you know, community really is, uh, from my perspective, the medium and the message uh, of indigenous thought. If our communities uh, are not healthy, if our communities are being in some ways uh, distressed, that affects us all as indigenous people in some way. My background, you know, originally uh, I was trained as a uh, field biologist uh, with a focus on plant ecology and plant communities. And so 
uh, I was very aware of uh, kind of natural processes within uh, the natural world as it relates to community. And uh, as I began to study indigenous um, uh, education, I began to see how deeply community was involved with bringing forward the various expressions of indigenous education that I was researching. And I began to also see that in many ways indigenous communities mimicked the natural community uh, that they were situated in. So they used both in language and also in expressions and also in technologies, natural kinds of references or natural kinds of, of materials that came directly from their place. And so this uh, interaction of, of human communities or indigenous communities with the places in which they lived is, uh, is very apparent uh, and, and in many ways uh, formed indigenous communities in a variety of different ways. As we began to uh, you know, experience colonization uh, and communities were, were in a sense, uh, in many cases, devastated uh, or dismembered in a variety of different kinds of ways, we began to, to lose that part, that very important foundation of indigenous identity. And in many ways, I use the word remembering, which is to, to bring back together. Uh, so it's not only remembering our communities historically, but it's also the actual act of uh, bringing aspects of our community that are important to to maintain and to sustain and to and to move into the future, as a part of of this in a sense reclamation of indigenous education. So, what aspects of indigenous community and indigenous community education could be useful for people who are not indigenous but are trying to create some sense of community or sustain some coming together as peoples? From the very beginning you know, of our life, we are dependent on other human beings in family, extended family, and ultimately in community you know, that form us, that give us life, that sustain us, that nourish us. We've sort of ignored that aspect of ourselves or maybe not remembered or in some ways not uh, given emphasis to that because modern society is so individualistically oriented, you know. For indigenous people, uh, we have a relational philosophy, which means that uh, our focus of attention revolves around how are we related to this or how are we related to that, which includes uh, each other, the place in which we live, the plants, the animals, the mountains, the waters, you know, uh, the stars. So out of that springs uh, the concept that I call natural democracy because everything has rights. Every living thing, every place, and for indigenous people, even places are living things. You know, they have a living spirit. They have a spirit to them. So places, mountains, waters, uh, you know, have spirit. And so if they have spirit, they're living. And so that uh, those entities, you know, uh, we are related to them, but they also have rights, just as humans have rights. And, and so this idea of that uh, decisions need to be made in relationship to how it impacts not only other human beings, but also how it impacts 
you know, the plants, the animals, the places, the waters, uh, the mountains in which uh, you live. So out of that notion, you know, is a kind of democracy. And, and I think that's what, uh, in many ways, people like Benjamin Franklin and others who, you know, coined the uh, U.S. Constitution, they were looking at uh, how Native people viewed and understood this whole notion of relationship and how they accorded everything in the world that Native people felt related to some kinds of rights, which is a very ecological uh, idea. So out of that came this whole notion, from my perspective, of natural democracy. In a modern con- political context, that's considered just you know totally outside the box. But for Native people, it's not because it, it really is going back to a traditional value and ethic that everything has rights. You know, I think is very important to consider today because in many ways we're looking at environmental degradation literally globally, and a lot of that degradation is being allowed because of our perspectives and understandings uh, about rights. You know, so we've given corporations rights, but we haven't really uh, understood that, uh, as indigenous people have always understood, that places, uh, that waters, that that plants and that animals and that uh, mountains and uh, uh, all of the natural world basically has rights too. And so that's a radical notion, right? You know, in terms of, of the way you think about the whole notion of rights, you know, political as well as uh, legal rights. But for indigenous people, it's not because, uh, because that's part of that, that notion and that extension of an understanding of kinship, of relationship uh, to each other, to places, uh, to the natural world. And so uh, as radical a notion as it may seem from another point of view, which is a, the point of view of the ecological ethic, uh, it's not so radical and actually it's, it's almost essential. That was author and scholar Dr. Gregory Cajete, Chair of Native American Studies at the University of New Mexico, interviewed by University of Arizona professor Patricia Gonzalez. You can hear the complete conversation on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. The music was Zuni Sunrise, featuring flutist Gary Strautsos and singer Fernando Salicione from a Native American collection called Remembering the Songs. Listen for more Indigenous Voices in the future. And stay tuned for more Arizona Spotlight after this break.
Welcome back to the show. This is your neighbor next door, your everyday soccer mom. You know the kind. She attends all the PTA meetings. She works the fundraisers and finds the sponsors for the team's jerseys. When the kids are at school, she enjoys a Pilates class and a game of tennis before picking up organic produce for that evening's meal. Now let's say she was on the tennis court and tore her rotator cuff. She's known her doctor for years. Ibuprofen isn't helping. Sympathetic to her pain, the physician prescribes opiates. He even refills the script. Down the road, the physician backs off of the pain medication refills. Now this would be one of the more scrupulous doctors. He suggests she come in to see him. Your neighbor thinks about it, and then she looks into the local pain management clinics, and she gets by for a while, but with a hefty cost she's trying to hide from her husband. Then she learns she can buy the opiates off the streets. But she's worried. She really doesn't know what's in them. She's educated, after all. She starts researching her options. With heroin, she has a better idea of what she's taking. She also knows that heroin will bring her a higher high and at much less expense. She also knows that she doesn't have to shove a needle up her arm. She can take the heroin in pill form. That was an excerpt from the detective novel Tracks, the latest work from Tucson author Lala Corriere. She uses the ongoing national crisis of opioid addiction as a backdrop for her thriller, focusing on the lives that are destroyed by addiction to prescription drugs. Corriere followed her dream of becoming a writer after careers in real estate and interior design. On her website, she describes herself as a mistress to suspense, something I had to ask her about. Sidney Sheldon mentored me, and he was the master of suspense. And then we have Mary Higgins Clark, who's the queen of suspense. So I guess I just put my twist on it because I don't want to be... um, I want to be the mistress to suspense. There's a difference, you know, between mystery, suspense, and thrillers. Mysteries are definitely the whodunits, so there's little clues coming in and out all the time. With suspense and thrillers, often you know who the bad person is. So we know with the movie Silence of the Lambs or Red Dragon, Mm -hmm. Hannibal Lecter is the bad guy. We know that. But we see his soft side. And in the movie Red Dragon, The very, very bad guy shows elements of being a good guy. He's taking this blind woman into a a zoo with a sedated lion and letting her touch and feel this lion. He has good qualities. So with my books, generally I throw in some pretty big twists, but the hints have been there all along. It's the kind of thing people will go back and reread to see that because I love that part of it, tying up all the little loose ends. What would you say was your primary goal in writing tracks? Well, this is a second in my first series with my Tucson private detective, Cassidy Clark. What I explore in tracks are, first of all, the mafia that is in our backyard right here in Tucson. And I wanted to explore what is a true crisis in our country. And it's it's in the news every day. It's the use of overuse of uh, prescribed painkillers leading toward heroin abuse. It was one of the scariest things I researched because we're talking about your neighbor next door that's in big trouble. 
Well, tell me a little more about what form your research into the opioid epidemic took in order to inform the book tracks. I would not use names, but I interviewed several doctors, and one of them basically has lost his license. I don't remember the cost of his office visits, but it was cash up front, and the FBI came in and seized everything from him. Hmm. I met with him after the fact. He proclaims that he was doing a good service for people, but in fact, we know the reality is he was pocketing a lot of money, and it's uh, devastating. What about victims of addiction? Um, in what form did your preparation for the book take in understanding what people who become addicted to opioids go through? Well, my research involved definitely talking to methadone clinics. They try and help these people. Almost any of us can get a prescription for opioids, and uh, we might get it refilled maybe more than once, maybe twice. But the government is cracking down on these doctors that are overprescribing these bad drugs. And what's happening is that people are learning that, you know, the doctors aren't giving them these drugs anymore. They're addicted, so they turn to the streets. And they don't know really what's out there in the streets. What they do know is that heroin is a viable option. Gives you twice the high at half the price. That's what's happening. How many novels have you written before tracks? Five. This is my sixth one. Tell me a little bit about how you go about creating characters. And if you'd like to use Cassidy Clark as an example, go right ahead. Well, Cassidy Clark happens to be a feisty redhead. Where did you get an idea for that, Lala? <laughs> that lives in Tucson. Okay. And um, she's just a strong person. I'm a very strong person, but I'd be scared to pieces doing some of the things that she does. So she's kind of my alter ego, I suppose you could say. I love character development because I like them multidimensional because we all are. Before I begin a new novel, I probably have an idea of the plot. But then very much next to that is creating the characters. I need to know them intimately. I need to know if they like pizza. I need to know if they are educated. I need to know uh, if they have family and, and do they like dogs? Do they prefer goldfish? I just want to know every little detail I can. And it's really hard because when you're writing a novel, let's just say you're up to about 85,000 words. You have to remember fiction writers are liars. So we have to remember all of those lies. Mm -hmm. How is it that Cassidy Clark came into doing private investigation? Did she have a background in law enforcement? She did have a background in law enforcement. Really, she was just a street cop. Cassidy has a uh, college buddy that went to law school, became a lawyer, There's maintained good friends. And in the book tracks, Brecy LeMay, the attorney, comes down to Tucson and they form a practice together. They share cases, you know, as they intertwine quite often where they need to do stakeouts, research, that kind of thing. She also basically wanted to make more money than being a city cop. And that's unfortunate, but that is the reality, mm -hmm. you know, on our streets today. She also is an author, and she writes crime novels, true crime novels, mostly things that she's witnessed. So that gives affords her the time to bounce back and forth. Lala Courier's Cassidy Clark mystery novel, Tracks, is available from Bridge Publishing. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. 
can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.